Well, thanks again for being here at Grace. We're glad that you're with us this, this morning and uh, here at our campus here. And also, we have a campus in Paulding, Ohio. And again, thanks for being at Grace. We're really excited about getting started with our new, new series. Before we talk about that, though, just kind of want to recap what happened last Sunday. We had a big meal here. It's kind of a Celebrate Grace Day. And uh, I think we, we have a picture right here. Yeah. And uh, I, I just want you to know to make this happen, 700 chickens had to sacrifice their lives. You know, that's 1,400 half chickens, and we just had a great time. And then Wednesday, out at the fair, how many were there? Yeah, well, this, we had a great time out at the fair, and if you missed it, we put a little recap together for you. Here it is. And then while we're out there, how many got a hold of the fair food? <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, I, I got in there and I heard that there were deep fried Buckeyes. And uh, you have to be in Ohio to know that, but uh, deep fried Buckeyes. And I went on search for those and I never found them, but I found something even better. If you can imagine... I found a place that actually would sell you, it's amazing that this is even legal, that they, chocolate chip cookie dough, deep fried, they pull it out, then they sprinkle it with powdered sugar, and then they drizzle it with chocolate. And, and you bite into it, it's just mushy chocolate chip cookie. I mean, it was delicious. I can't wait till the fair next year to, to jump into that. I mean, it, it, amazing stuff. Boy, man, that makes me hungry just thinking. <laughs> We're excited about end times. And I, I got to tell you, I love talking about prophecy. It's been a while since we've done that at church. I used to do it a lot. I've all, I've, since I was a teenager, I've really been um, just a student of prophecy. I remember when I was a youth pastor here at Grace, there's still a few around here that used to call me Kevelation because I talked about uh, end times so much, so I, I've kind of stepped back from that. But we're going to dive in, 
And if you think about it, all the stuff going on in the world, um, all the, the, the things, the uncertainty, financial uncertainty, um, all the natural disasters that people are talking about. Of course, now we have a worldwide connection, and so we see all that stuff. And, and then all the wars, rumors of wars, uh, the unrest in the Middle East. The Middle East is always a focus of everyone's foreign policy. You know, what's, what's going on with that? And, and then you have the Iran deal that, that's only a deal for Iran, but it's just like a nightmare. We're talking about a nuclear Iran. You know, this year probably. It's just amazing stuff happening. And the Bible has a lot to say about these things. It, what, what's interesting is, uh, you know, now we, we have like shows about doomsday preppers. You know, we didn't have that 10 years ago. It, it's just it, Hollywood, as a matter of fact, 40 years ago, all the movies about the future, they were utopian. They were, oh, in the future, it's going to be great. In the future, all the problems will be solved. But now, in the last 10 years, all the, the movies about the future, they're not utopian. They're apocalyptic. Have you noticed that? I mean, you have the Book of Eli and World War Z and just all this stuff. And then the TV shows, The Walking Dead and Falling Skies and, you know, all this stuff. And it's all apocalyptic in nature. And, and we look around and people are, like, asking questions about end times, maybe like they've never asked questions before. And it's because of all this uncertainty, all this piling on, what's going on, and what does the Bible have to say about it? Now, Hollywood misses the mark on the end times, but I'm here to tell you that the Bible is spot on. And before we get into this whole prophecy topic that we'll be covering the next two weeks, I, I want us to focus also on the foundation that we need to lay for us to build on to get there. And, and I'm telling you, we can trust the Bible about prophetic things, but I know everybody is, is not thinking that. So as we look at that, here's my first question that I want to answer. Can we prove the Bible accurately predicts the future? Can we prove that the Bible accurately predicts the future. I'm saying, yes, we can. And the groundwork for that is this. First of all, we can scientifically prove that the Bible is authentic. And by that, I mean that the Bible that we have now, New Testament-wise, for example, is the same that was written 2,000 years ago in the first century. We can prove that. Now, as a matter of fact, when we compare it against other ancient writings, and, and we've actually done this before, actually even this year, so I don't want to do, uh, spend a lot of time doing that again. But think about other ancient writings, like uh, Caesar's, Galaic Wars, Homer's, Iliad, writings of Aristotle. All these writings, the Bible is proven to be way more authentic and accurate than that. For example, all those other three writings that I just mentioned, and those are the best attested ancient writings. It's a thousand years between the author and the earliest copy we have. But for the Bible, it's not that way at all. Within a hundred years, we have fragments and pieces. 
Within two to three hundred years, we have complete manuscripts of the entire New Testament. It's a completely different deal, and there's more agreement with them. So if you want more information about that, go to ohiograce.com and go back to April 4th, Easter Sunday, and I talk about that in detail. It's interesting because people, they, they would say things, and, and actually even my kids have heard this from teachers in Fremont, in the public school system, saying things like, we can't trust the Bible because it's been translated and retranslated for 2,000 years. And that, by the way, is just a myth. Here's how that goes. People say, well, the Bible was written, the New Testament, for example, was written in Greek. Then it was translated into Syriac and then translated into Latin and then translated into German and then translated into French and then translated into English. And with all those translations, there's going to be mistakes. That is a myth. All the modern versions that we have today do not rely on all those chains of translations. They all skip 2,000 years or 1,900 years of all those translations and they go back to the original Greek and they translate into the languages, modern languages today, from the Greek language. As a matter of fact, if you want to take the time to learn Greek, you don't need any translations. You can go back and read it for what it says. So we just have to know that's a myth. And because of that, we can scientifically prove that the Bible is authentic to what it originally said, that we have an accurate, authentic copy. Now, the Bible is also unique among all other religious texts. When it comes to predictive prophecy, detailed predicted prophecy, the Bible is the only religious text that has that and lays its credibility on the line. Meaning, if one of those predictive prophecies happened another way or did not come true in the way that it was said in the Bible, then that would cast doubt on the entire Bible because we're saying the whole Bible is the word of God. And if one prophecy was shown to be wrong, it would then it couldn't be the word of God. God doesn't make mistakes. So it's only the Bible that lays its credibility on the line by giving us specific predictive prophecies. Confucius doesn't do that. Muhammad, in the Quran, Muhammad wrote the Quran. He has one prophecy that he would return to Mecca in his lifetime, which he did, which would be a lot like me saying, hey, I'm going to go to Cincinnati for Christmas and then doing it, you know. That, you know, we're not, we don't count that. That's a self-fulfilled prophecy. The Bible, on the other hand, completely different, lays its credibility on the line. Now, how can, can we prove that the Bible is accurate in prophecy? This is really interesting to me. And this goes back even when I was in college. Uh, my first college years, uh, I graduated from Colorado State University Pueblo campus. And while I was there, I took a philosophy class. I, I majored in business. And in that philosophy class, there was an atheist philosophy teacher. And he was in the front of the class, and I sat in the middle of the back row. And then we would have these debates throughout the class. And one of the times as he was discounting the word of God, he knew a lot about the Bible. And he said, not authored by God, though, of course, is what he would say. And as we debated that, I brought up, one of the things I brought up as a defense of the Bible that can be proven to be the word of God was predictive prophecy. 
This guy, this atheist, knew a whole bunch about the Bible. And here was his argument to the class. And he used a whiteboard to illustrate this. He might have been a blackboard. I can't remember. But anyway, he, he made a mark. And he said, and he admitted, because he was a student of the Bible, that all these prophecies had come true. Hundreds. He said, prophecy, and it comes true. Prophecy, and it comes true. And he just made all these lines on the board. A whole bunch of them. Maybe he did 50 lines. He said, and, and let's say there's hundreds of prophecies and they've all come true, which they have. And then he says, now, next prophecy. Just because all those other ones came true doesn't mean the next one is going to come true. And the class is just sitting there going, okay. And I'm going, and I'm back on the back row, and I go, my money's on coming true. Because all the other ones have come true. My, I'm saying my bet is that this next one will come true if it's got that kind of a track record. That was the best argument that a studied atheist could have against predictive prophecy. Yeah, it's all come true, but that doesn't necessarily mean, even though it's 100% accurate so far, doesn't mean the next one's going to be accurate. We can prove that the Bible's accurate based on its track record. There are at least 60 Old and here's how we prove it. There's at least 60 Old Testament prophecies that came true in the life of Christ. There's a lot more than that. There's 60 that the New Testament identifies and documents and says, oh, by the way, when Jesus did this, it was in, fulfill it was in fulfillment of something that, that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So you understand what I'm talking about, right? The Old Testament was written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And so Christ's life, when things were happening, he fulfilled the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And as they were writing the New Testament, which they wrote all the books of the New Testament in the first century, they were talking about, oh, by the way, these are the prophecies, specifically named them. They named 60 of them. Christ fulfilled hundreds. They, 60 of them are named in the New Testament as being fulfilled from the Old Testament. Some of them, he just did it, and they, they aren't pointing that out to us. And I don't want to get bogged down in this, but, but I think that there could be some kind of skeptics in the room. So I want to lay this foundation. So if you just give me a moment, here's what I'm talking about. For example, it was prophesied in Micah that uh, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So here's what it says. But as for you... Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is interesting because there's actually two Bethlehems, and this is the one specifying that this Bethlehem is the one we know that's next to Jerusalem. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's a small town. But from you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. Talking about the Messiah. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's talking about this Messiah will be God. It's prophesied that a messenger would prepare a way for the Messiah. Talking about John the Baptist in Malachi 3.1. That the Messiah will enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. We see that in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here's this prediction that the Messiah is coming. He's going to enter Jerusalem 
on a donkey. That happened on Palm Sunday in 33 AD. The, also, the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We see that in Zechariah 11, 12, the second half of that verse. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Isaiah, uh, also that the betrayal money is used to buy a potter's field is predicted. Also that the Messiah will remain silent while he's being accused and, and at trial. We see that in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Over and over it's telling us that. We know that the Messiah died by having his hands and his feet pierced. Psalm 22 says, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, here's what I'm talking about. When that was written in Psalms, uh, hundreds of years before Christ, when that was written, crucifixion had not even been invented yet. And they're already saying how the Messiah is going to die, and part of it will be that his hands and his feet will be pierced. It also predicts in the Old Testament that he'll be hung on a tree. So you have this, he's going to die by being hung on a tree, his hands and feet are going to be pierced, but again... Crucifixion has not even been invented by the Romans yet. This is hundreds of years before they even knew what crucifixion was. That was documented for us. We can prove all that. The Messiah will be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And there's many other prophecies that he would... The Messiah would be of the seed of Abraham and the seed of Isaac from the tribe of Judah, from the line, the king, kingly line of David, um, that he would perform miracles, that he would cleanse the temple, that he would be reject and mocked by his own people, that, he, that they would cast lots for his clothing when he died, that he'd be crucified with thieves, that he would pray for his persecutors that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. These are things that Jesus had no control over that happened at, in fulfillment of predictive prophecy. Now, here's what I'm saying. If you're a skeptic, fair enough, but you have to square with that. If you don't believe the Bible, then you have to figure out what is your view then on how the, when Christ came that he fulfilled all those prophecies because the odds are crazy. There's actually a mathematician who specialized in studying prophetic uh, prophecy and the odds of prophecies coming true. And although we're talking about hundreds of prophecies just in Christ, there's also prophecies about cities and everything else. We're just focused on Christ. There's hundreds of prophecies. There's 60 of them recorded in the New Testament that they're pointing out, oh, this was fulfilled. And he said, this guy's name is Peter Stoner. He said, if you took just eight of those hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of this one person, Jesus Christ, the odds are amazing. The odds, he said, were actually one in a quad, quad million, quadrillion, or however you say that. Help me out. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, it's one in a million billion. It's one with 17 zeros. It says, of course, we don't understand numbers like that. So in order to help us understand numbers, he worked out an equation to help illustrate it. And here's what he said. He said, 
If you took the state of Texas and covered it with silver dollars to have a million billion, they would be two feet deep. So you can cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep is a million billion or one with 17 zeros. He goes, so now here's the illustration. So you cover Texas two feet of silver dollars. Then you get a big Texas-sized spoon and you stir it all up. And then you grab a guy and you blindfold him. And, and by the way, you put an X on one of those silver dollars and stir that into the pot. You grab a guy, you blindfold him, you spin him around three times, you airlift him to the middle of Texas and parachute him down. And then he can walk anywhere he wants to walk, blindfolded, and dig as deep as he wants to dig, and he has one pick. And the odds of him picking the silver dollar with the X on it is one in a million billion. The same odds of one man in all of human history fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that the Old Testament had about Jesus Christ. But he didn't just fulfill eight. But I'm just trying to get you to see, that's what you have to figure out. If there were just eight prophecies, how did that happen? That's what you've got to square with. Since the Bible's proven to be accurate regarding future events, because the Old Testament has proven that, then the question is, what does the Bible tell us about the most important events that will happen next in human history? And basically what I want to do is kind of give you an outline of what's going to happen next, kind of like a, a timeline. And so we have the Old Testaments over here, and then we have the life of Christ. He came, and then he went back to heaven. And then we have this kind of unspecified amount of time that we call the church age. But the next thing on God's calendar is called the rapture. Of all these things, this is the one thing that doesn't really concern the nation of Israel. Almost all prophecies concern Israel. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament prophets, they saw this, they saw the second coming, and this, and this. Not so much the rapture. But here's where we see the rapture in the Bible. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. He says, but we do not want you, he's writing a church and some people have died and the Christians use a euphemism, sleep for, for death. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, and, and this is the term, where the term rapture comes from, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That, and it's also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus refers to it in John chapter 14. That's called the rapture. The word rapture is not in the Bible, 
but it's just the term we use, it's a Latin term that really means caught up to, to God. And so that's kind of the next thing that's going to happen. Now, after the rapture, then these other things kick in. Seven years of tribulation. There's going to be, how does that start? A world leader signs a peace treaty with Israel. We find out that world leader turns out to be the Antichrist. Signs a peace treaty with Israel. There's a, a kind of a smaller war involving Russia, Iran, we think, which is interesting. And then there's some peace in the middle of the seven, the seven years, which is three and a half years. The Antichrist does some stuff that I'll explain later. And then there's the second three and a half years. And then after that, there's another big war, and that's the second coming of Christ. That's what we refer to as Armageddon. And then after that, after he comes again, there's the millennial kingdom. So these are the major, this is the major structure, and there's a lot more detail to come. But Christ already came. Next thing, rapture, tribulation, uh, Christ's second coming, millennial kingdom. And then after that, millennial kingdom just means thousand. After that thousand years, the eternal state. So that's kind of what's happening. Now, if this is what's coming, how do we discern the signs of the times? The first thing we need to understand is the signs that Christ talked about regarding his coming back, his return, or the second coming, were all about this event right here. So what I'm saying is, all these, when you hear people talking about blood moons and people talking about wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and all those things, those are all signs pointing to this. But seven years before that, the church is taken out. It's when the day of the Lord kind of starts. So I just want to make that distinction that we're looking at a bunch of signs that are pointing to something that happens seven years after we're gone. Or another way to say it, we're pointing out a bunch of signs that's talking about the coming of Christ, but seven years before that happens, we're gone. Now, we all know what a sign is. We have signs all over our lives. We have some signs that, that don't make any sense, like this. We have some signs that are kind of funny which we're going to put this up in our uh, <laughs> children's ministry. And this. This might take you a while, but, but I like it. All right. So. We have signs that are serious, which I love this. Touching wires causes instant death. And by the way, there's a $200 fine. Like, we're worried about that, okay? And then also signs that are just ignored. So, so here's my question. How do we approach the signs of the times that we see? There's really three ways to approach. One way is skepticism. We say, now, not buying the signs, don't like the signs, don't want to hear about the signs, we can't really know, nothing is a sign. Skepticism. The second approach is sensationalism. Everything's a sign. Sign, sign everywhere. You know, it's, it's all a sign. Anything, yeah, yeah. We'll get Jay to sing that next week, yeah, because you don't want to hear that from me again. Yeah, it's all, it's every, you know, some people are just walking around. Everything they see is a sign. And then the next 
category, the third approach, is what is termed, a lot of people call, stage setting. That just means, are we actually seeing things that we could look to the Bible and, and draw clear connections with what God's saying? Now, some of stage setting is like reverse engineering. Like when we looked at that timeline a while ago, for there to be a peace treaty, so, so we're saying, hey, in the future, there's going to be a world leader that signs a peace treaty with Israel. Well, for that to happen, so we reverse engineer that means, for that to happen, guess what? There has to be a nation called Israel. Because realize, for 1900 years, there has been no nation called Israel. Only since 1948 has Israel been a country, and only since 1967 has Israel had Jerusalem as its undivided capital. So we just, now, that's not stage setting in the sense of reverse engineering, because there's a whole bunch of predictive prophecy in the Old Testament that says the Jewish people would be regathered in Israel. It happened once before, by the way, and it was going to happen again, and that has come true. And that's another thing. You have to square with, well, how did that happen? That hasn't happened for anybody in all of human history. We'll talk more about that later. But so some of it's reverse engineering to say, okay, for example, in the middle of those seven years, there's a temple. Well, they don't have a temple now. So reverse engineering just means to say, all right, for that to happen, if they start building a temple, then we'll be going, okay, this makes sense. Because in the middle, there's a temple. It's that stage setting. So the question is, for example, a lot of people are talking about blood moons. Is we have to figure out, does this belong in category number two, sensationalism, or category number three, stage setting? That's what we're going to look at in more detail next Sunday. We're going to say, here's why this belongs into this category. All right, now, Jesus taught his followers to watch for signs of his coming. Jesus said, hey, watch for signs. One time he was talking to the Pharisees, and he really scolds them for not watching the signs. I was, uh, grew up with a, a master chief from the Navy as my dad, and so he taught me a saying, and I bet you know it too, and it goes like this. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailor take warning. Right. Jesus knew this saying. And he was actually, he uses this to scold the Pharisees. And that happens in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 2. Where am I at here? Back up, I'm sorry. Beginning in verse 1. My bad. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So they're saying, prove it, give me a sign. But he replied to them, and here's the little saying. When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red. Okay, so morning, yeah, red. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? Okay. Here's Jesus saying, hey, you got your little saying about when the sky is red, what that means for weather. And we all know the saying. But he's scolding them to say, 
but you guys missed my coming. Here I am as Messiah. You're asking me for a sign. There's already been hundreds of signs in the Old Testament that I'm fulfilling right now as I'm talking to you. And you've missed that and you're looking for another sign. But here's my point. If Jesus is chastising them for not paying attention to the signs, do you think he wants us to pay attention to the signs? I, I think he does. As a matter of fact, later in Matthew, in Matthew uh, chapter 24, he gives a whole list of the signs of his second coming. But again, that's the second coming of Christ after the rapture and after the tribulation. And he sort of lists them off. So this is very interesting. On one hand, he says, no one knows the, the day or the hour. And we all get that. Nobody knows when Christ is coming back, especially when we're thinking about the rapture, which is kind of the first event that happens on his return. But then he gives a list of things that are going to happen preceding his physically coming back all the way to earth. All right, so wow, okay, that's interesting. And there's another thing. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, there's a verse that basically tells us we should come to church. It's Hebrews 10, 24. Here's what it says. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking, this is the church part, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the writer saying there? He's saying, hey, don't, you should be coming to church. Don't get in the habit of not coming to church like some people are doing. You need to come and to encourage each other. And you need that all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's the point. If we could not possibly see the day drawing near, then this verse would make no sense, right? He's saying all the more as you see the day drawing near, which that tells us we should be able to see signs that show that the day is, is in fact drawing near. Now... Signs, again, point us to the physical return of Christ on earth. But there are no signs that need to happen before the rapture when the church is taken out. So there's no sign. Nowhere in the Bible does it say there's any sign. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that that will happen imminent. When we talk about the imminent return of Christ, we're saying... The first step of his return is he comes just to the clouds and he calls his church out, called the rapture. That, nothing has to happen. That can happen today. That could have happened 10 years ago. That can happen tomorrow or any day. That's what we're saying. And nobody knows when that's going to happen. But we do have signs that point to something after that called the second coming of Christ. Well, here's the point. And all this is just kind of an introduction. What does all this mean to us? Is this important? So what? What's the deal? Well, here, here's the deal. First of all, we are told by Jesus and by other biblical writers, not that Jesus was a writer, but he's the one that said it that other people were writing, that we are to be ready. To be watch and be ready, he's saying. Okay, well, that means that we're supposed to realize that this could happen. And so we're told in scripture that we are to live our lives as if Jesus, come, Jesus 
could come back for us any day. We're supposed to live our lives because Jesus is coming back that way, but also live our lives because God hasn't guaranteed us any amount of days. We're told in scripture that we need to live every day in light of the fact that it could be our last day because we could die or Jesus could snatch us out of here, the rapture. That's what we're told. That's what it means to be ready. Now, the most important way to be ready is to have a relationship with God because the Bible's teaching us that once the end comes, the very end, that there's no changing of minds, there's no second chances, that we only have this life to place our trust in Christ. And that this is the great message, the overarching message of the entire Bible. It's not about end times. It's about what is God's plan for redeeming man. Because the Bible teaches us that God created us. He gave us a free will. And he had to if he wanted a real relationship with us. But with that free will that we've all done things that, that, that God says we shouldn't do. We've all sinned against him. We've all violated his commands. If you're not sure about that, read the Ten Commandments someday. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. You know, always keep God first. Never take the Lord's name in vain. You know, keep one day in seven as God's day. Honor your par parents all the time. Never tell a lie. You know, on and never steal anything. Ever. You know, on and on it goes. And when we see that God's perfect standard, we all realize, if we're honest with ourselves, whoa, I violated God's command. But as we read in one of those verses, those prophetic verses and other places in the New Testament, we're taught that God is perfectly just, meaning sin has to be punished or God wouldn't be just. So he has to punish sin, which is... Bad news for every human being on the planet. But because God loved us and loves us, he made a way. And he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come the first time, humbly, as a servant, poor, to teach us and ultimately to voluntarily sacrifice his own life on the cross of Calvary where his creation tortured and crucified him to death. And three days later, he rose again. And 40 days later, ascended to heaven. And here's the deal. And in doing that, he invites all people to come to him. That the way we receive salvation is simply by placing our faith, our trust, our belief in Jesus, who he is, God, and what he did, died on the cross to pay for our sins. He's the only one qualified, the only one that didn't have any sins of his own. He came to pay for your personal sins and my personal sins. And the way we get that accredited to our account is by faith, by placing our faith, our trust. have been talking about this a few weeks ago. In Jesus and what he did and nothing else. So if you've come to a point in your life where you realize that you've placed your faith in Jesus and what he did alone, and realize that you don't bring anything to the table, then that means you're a Christian. But if you're thinking, yeah, I know Jesus died for my sins, plus I try to live a good life, then you don't get it. You're missing it. 
Or, yeah, I know Jesus died for my sins, plus I go to church every Sunday. Yeah, we're supposed to go to church, but that doesn't erase any sin. It's by trust in Jesus and what he did and nothing else. If you add anything to that message, you gut the message, you destroy the message. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Jesus plus anything is nothing. That's what you have to understand. And we're going to wrap up today. And I invite you to come back next time. Next time we're going to get into the, the meat of this. We've laid the groundwork. We have our introduction out of the way. And we will go into the meat of some of these things. What's happening? What do we see happening today? What does that mean? What ties to the Bible? What doesn't? We'll be figuring all that. But before we close, I want to give you the opportunity. If you're here and you don't know that you put your trust in Christ and that maybe you would like to, I want to give you that opportunity. I know we haven't spent much time in this message talking about that, but, but if you think you're ready to believe Jesus was who he said he was and did something out of love for you, then I'm asking you today to put your trust in him, and you can express that in prayer, and I'll lead you how to do that in just a moment. Let's bow our heads. If you're ready to put your faith in Christ, then you can make this prayer your prayer. You can do it silently. God knows your every thought. You can put it into your own words. But basically, express your trust in Christ verbally to God, maybe saying something like this. Father in heaven, I understand that like everybody else, I'm a sinner, that I've done things that you told me not to do. And because of that, I deserve punishment from a just God. But God, I also understand because you love me, you made a way for me not to be punished and separated from you. And God, I thank you for allowing Jesus Christ to come 2,000 years ago and, and voluntarily give up his life as a sacrifice of payment for my personal sin. God, I thank you for that. And I'm putting my trust in, in Jesus and Jesus alone and what he did for my salvation. I have nothing else. And as I place my trust in Christ alone, I also ask you to come into my life by way of your spirit and to help me to live life the way you'd like me to live it. That doesn't earn me salvation. I know that. It's just a way to love you back for the gift you've already given me. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like us to stand together and